Genesis 35. I'll just be reading verses 1 through 15, though I do want to be clear that really this whole chapter goes together, but we'll look at it um, over the next couple of weeks. Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me, In the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company or congregation of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be those who hear Christ as he speaks through his word and by his spirit, that we would see here Jacob's consecration of himself and his household, the people of God, as they enter into worship, as they ascend to dwell with you and lift up your name. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what Moses is saying to us and to your people in every generation. We know that our great end, the end for which we are created, the end for which we are provided for and for which we are redeemed, is to dwell with you, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. We pray that we would be a people who are strengthened in faith so that we would evermore walk in repentance and faith and joy 
in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think, I think we often come to a worship service like this um, in a similar, if you will, frame of heart or posture as we come to any kind of entertainment venue. We tend to show up on our timeline with our drinks in our hand, ready to give an assessment of all things, whether it's music or the message or the general experience of, of how everything's run. We then talk, tend to walk away with the judgment of the worship service that, that maybe we'll discuss at lunch that day. Maybe if we're at lunch with some friends, we'll discuss the worship service. It'll be things like, oh, I thought the worship service was really good today. I, I really felt moved by it. Or, or maybe it'll be like, I don't personally like when we do this, name it, whatever it is, in worship. Or, or I really like it when churches do this, whatever it is, in worship. Uh, and I could go on with examples like this, but you get the point. I want to reply to all that with a simple question. You ready? Simple question. Who cares what you think about the worship? You are not the one being worshipped. You are not the one who needs to find it acceptable. Friends, when we come to worship, we ought to be cognizant about the fact that God is the one being worshipped. And whether God finds our worship acceptable is really what matters. In other words, if God was at your lunch table, what would he have to say about the worship? I often hear, well, God does not care how he's worshipped as long as our heart is right. And you're, you're partly there and the rest of the way wrong. Friends, there are entire books of the Bible with specific instructions on how God wants to be worshipped. They're usually the parts of the Bible where your Bible reading dies. Does our heart need to be right in worship? Yes. A thousand times yes. In fact, that's going to be the majority of what this sermon is about. But our practices also need to be in accord with God's word. Sure, sure, but God doesn't care what day he's worshipped on as long as we do it, right? So not only does he not care how he's worshipped, he doesn't care what day he's worshipped on. Now the creation account and the fourth commandment tell a different story, don't they? Here's my point. God has set the rules for how he will be worshipped. And he didn't ask any of us if any of that fits with our preferences. He's told us what the elements of, new covenant worship, of a new covenant worship service should look like. We're commanded to do those. So I'm often asked the question, why do we structure the worship service at Sovereign Grace the way we do? Um, and the answer is because these are the elements that God commands us to employ in worship. I do not mean that the order in which we employ the elements or some of the circumstances around the way we perform the elements are exactly the what God has commanded. I mean the elements. So we actually list them. We give you guys a bulletin. And we, in the bulletin, the front page, if you've never paid any attention to it, on the back are these lovely pictures of us. On the front page, though, right inside, there are the elements of worship. We're not saying the, the order in which we arrange them or some of the stylistic, aesthetic choices we make with regard to doing these elements um, or the biblical way. So we're not saying you, sh you have to play guitar. We have a guitar and not a piano because moving a grand piano in our, every week and set up and tear down would be rough. Right? So we tend to go with a guitar. That's a circumstance. 
The command is to sing. The command isn't to even have a song leader. You guys know that? Don't have to have one. Why do we have a song leader? Because most people anymore don't know the hymns and psalms and how to sing them. So we have a song leader to help us sing them. But there's no command to have a song leader. There is a command to sing. There's no command to use particular instruments. There's a command to sing. Those are kind of aesthetic or circumstantial choices. There's no command that I have to amplify sound. There's a command to preach. Why do we amplify sound? It helps people hear. There's no command about those sorts of things, lighting, or that I have a wood pulpit, um, or that we meet at 9.30 a.m. No command about the time. But the elements are commanded. They're commanded, and so we do them. Even the day of the week on which we gather to worship, the Lord's day, is set apart by the Lord. Now, how we administer those elements is a matter of wisdom. So if you're like, I don't prefer that style, that aesthetic music. Okay, fine. That style of music, it's not my style. Not mine either. If it were up to me, Fernando Ortega would be up here with the piano. There'd be somebody with the cello right next to him, and off we'd go. That'd be my style. I'm dating myself. If, if, you, if, you know, if you don't know who he is, kids, I'm sorry. You have missed out, in my opinion. But style, we, style is not the issue. Elements. What are we required to do in worship, and are those present or not because God has commanded them? That's really the question about worship. I bring all this up because the centrality of worship in the Christian life It's the central thing that we do. In fact, throughout Genesis, I have argued throughout Genesis that God created all things, all things, so that we would be blessed with the privilege and joy of worshiping him. That's how the creation week is consummated. God creates all things in six days, and then he sets apart the seventh day as holy to the Lord so that we might worship him. Thus we can say rightly that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That was what we were created for. We were created to that end. We were created originally in this garden temple on a mountain called Eden. We dwelled in God's holy presence and worshiped him. That's what rest is. Rest is not the cessation of all activity. Rest is the cessation of secular activity for the enjoyment of worship. But we sinned. We were defiled by our sin. We spiritually died and we will physically die because of our sin. And thus we were cast out of God's garden, out of God's holy presence. No longer allowed to enter that place where God dwells that we might worship him. There were cherubim set there with a sword to keep us out. And if we tried to enter, we would die. And the story of the Bible is how God is sending the Messiah, the second Adam, the one who would keep the law that Adam failed to keep, who would pay the penalty for our sin, who would crush Satan. God is sending him to bring us back into his dwelling place. That's why Revelation ends the way it does, where we're back in the dwelling place with God. And he is our God, and we're his people, and we dwell with him, and the tree of life is there. This Messiah, 
This seed of the woman and offspring of Abraham will be the king who subdues all our enemies, who crushes Satan under our feet. This Messiah will also be the priest who atones for all our sin, who cleanses us and sets us apart as holy to the Lord. And the story of Genesis is the story of the creation, the fall, and the redemption that will be found in the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the one who is of the tribe of Judah. And we're seeing God's promise of that Christ, the Messiah, who's going to solve the problem to bring us back into God's place of worship, to dwell with him. We're seeing that progressively unfolding in Genesis. We're seeing that that in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that there's a Messiah who will come through their offspring. And as we approach Genesis 35, I want you to remember that's the broader setting of this story. In fact, that's the broader setting of the whole Bible, if you will. We were created to worship God. We sinned and we were kicked out of his holy dwelling place. And now the rest of the Bible is the unfolding story of the one who will come and bring us back into the place where we dwell with God and worship him. That is the broader story, or excuse me, the broader setting of this story. At the same time, the narrower setting of this story is that we're coming to the conclusion of our focus on Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and really transitioning to the story of his 12 sons, specifically and especially Joseph. Jacob's story began, if you remember, when he stole his brother's um, his brother Esau's birthright and his blessing. It actually begins before that when he's in the womb and God says, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated And I'm not going to go back into all that. But the story in earnest begins when he steals his birthright and then his blessing. And then he flees the promised land to escape from his brother and he goes to Haran to get a wife. On the way to Haran, on the way to Haran, we read about God making a series of promises to Jacob. God appears to Jacob and makes a series of promises, and then Jacob makes a vow in reply. So let's, to get the setting for this chapter, let's look at Genesis chapter 28. Look over at Genesis 28. We'll see this appearance as really the, the first time Jacob's in Bethel, which is where he's coming, to Bethel. He's coming to the Bethel, or Bethel's the house of God. The house of God. He's coming there in verse 10, Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He's going there to get a wife, remember, from his mother Rebekah's household. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. In other words, here's, here's, if you will, the stairway to heaven. The way you get to heaven. Now, Christ is going to pick this up in John 1 and say, that was me. I'm the one who brings you to the dwelling place of God where you worship him. So the angels are ascending and descending, and, and he goes on. And behold, verse 13, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. 
Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. See, I'm going to give you many children. I'm going to bring you back to this spot. I won't leave you until I bring you back here. Now we'll go on. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord, Yahweh, is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. Awesome. Why? Because God is here. And I am overwhelmed with reverence and fear that God would dwell here. Ian Hamilton points this out all the time. I was just in Texas with him the other day. He's a minister in Scotland. And um, I was in Texas with him, and I, I heard him do it to somebody. We were both preaching at a conference, and somebody says, isn't this awesome about some kind of burger or something we're eating? And Ian's like, no, this isn't awesome. God is awesome. This is a burger. <laughs> you you understand? Like, Awesome. Now look what he goes on to say. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So in other words, he sets up a place to worship and says, if you bring me back here, I will continue to worship you here and here's a tenth part. In other words, I'm going to give an offering of all that I have because, because I know it all comes from you. And I'm setting myself apart, giving myself over to worship. That's what the tithe or the offering is supposed to be. You know that, right? It's not supposed to be, well, I need to do my duty and give a little money to the church. It's supposed to be a, a right that you participate in as a way of saying, I belong to the Lord and everything I have belongs to the Lord. And so I'm giving a portion of that to mark that off. Well, God gave Jacob the same promises he gave to Abraham and Isaac, and we'll return to these next week. But you heard them. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll be with you. I'll give you numerous offspring in the promised land. I'll bless all the nations through you. And God also told Jacob, I will go with you where you're going to Haran, and I will remain with you, and I'll bring you back here to this land. And Jacob called that place Bethel, the house of God. In other words, that's where God dwells and promised to return. Now we come to Genesis 35. God has been with Jacob. He has blessed him with a family. He's now bringing him back to Bethel. Genesis 35 stands, as we, if you will, as a chapter, as a kind of transition from Jacob to his sons. But for the purpose of preaching, I'm breaking this really into two parts. So this morning I want to look specifically at Genesis 35, 1 through 15, but we're going to come back to some of these verses next week. I'm not going to deal with everything that's here. 
I want to take, though, the, our passage this morning under three headings. Here's what they are. And they're all C's. It just worked out that way. I didn't go searching for, for it. It just happened, right? Um, I wasn't trying to alliterate. That's not my thing, but sometimes it happens. First, the call to worship, verse 1. Second, consecration for worship, verses 2 through 4. And third, confidence in worship, verses 5 through 15. So that's how we're going to come at this. So let's look first at how God calls Jacob to worship. The call to worship in verse 1. Look at 35, chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Remember, this is the place he's returning now. Now, what, look, notice what God tells him to do. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. See, the Lord promised to be with Jacob and to bring him back, and the Lord has kept his promise. He brought Jacob back to the land. And for what purpose is Jacob being brought back? Well, he is to do what? Make an altar. He's coming there to worship God. An altar is a place where you offer sacrifices and offerings to God. It's a, it's a place of worship. We don't have an altar anymore. You guys know that? Because Christ has been offered on the altar as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. So we don't go to an altar anymore. We come and gather with Christ's people to worship him. But Christ had not yet been offered. So they built these altars to offer gifts and sacrifices to worship God. And Jacob is being brought back to the land for one purpose, above all, which is to worship the Lord. This is the same reason the Lord redeems Israel from Egypt, isn't it? Remember, when Israel is redeemed from Egypt, from slavery to Pharaoh, they're redeemed so that they might go and worship him. They're going to come to a mountain where he is and worship. They're going to go to a promised land with a tabernacle, a house of God, and God will dwell there and they will worship him. Friends, this is the same reason God has redeemed us in Christ, so that we might worship him. Worship is initiated by God from beginning to end. He's the God who created us for worship. He's the God who redeems us for worship. He's the God who calls us to worship. That's why a worship service begins with a call to worship. God greets his people and calls his people to worship him. The call to worship is not something we do because it's a nice religious formality. We do it because we're being reminded that we only come to worship because God has called us to it. He commands us to enter his presence. It's this glorious obligation and privilege to be called to worship by God. He calls you to worship every Lord's day. God calls Jacob and his family to worship, and they come. God calls us to worship every Lord's Day. Now, is our life supposed to be offered to God as a living sacrifice, and this is holy and acceptable um, as an act of worship? Yes, of course, every day. But the Lord is also set apart one day in seven to call us to worship together. The call is a command, not an option that you exercise if you want the circumstances of the call are arranged by the ministers and elders of the church. 
The elements are not. The elements are given in Scripture, but the ministers and elders arrange the circumstances. God has set them apart as under-shepherds of Christ to administer the elements and to determine the wisdom of the circumstances they're using. Should we use a guitar? Should we have a song leader? Should we do it in this order or that order? They set the time on the Lord's Day. We set it at 9.30. Some of you set it at 9.40 or 9.45, but we set it at 9.30. They set the place of meeting. We meet here. They set the manner of administering the elements. We use these trays to pass out the bread and the cup. And we pass it out rather than having you come forward because theater seating um, is not the best if there's like unbelievers on the edge of your row and you're like, excuse me, unbeliever, I need to get to the Lord's Supper that you're not welcome to. That just seems awkward. So we pass it out instead. You, you see how that works? So we made, a, we made a wisdom call. Is it the right way to do it? We're not saying that. We're saying it's the way that we chose to do it. We're commanded to do it. Christ's people come to worship. We're called by God. That leads to our second heading, consecration for worship. Verses 2 through 4, consecration for worship. Look there with me. So Jacob said, so God's called them to worship. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your, change your garments then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. See, Jacob is actually consecrating his household for worship. What does it mean to be consecrated? It, it, it means to be set apart. It's consecrating them for worship. They're setting them apart for worship. Jacob understands that his family needs to be cleansed. They need to be cleansed externally so they do a washing. It's not just like take a shower so we can go to the worship service. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a, a cleansing, an external cleansing. Um, this will be picked up in Leviticus um, under the idea of baptism, which then comes forward in the New Testament. You all know that. So they're cleansing themselves. They're changing their garments. So they take off their soiled garments and they put on fresh garments. Right? There, there is a kind of external setting apart and there's an internal setting apart in approaching God's house in worship. The internal setting apart is, is actually being pointed at with the external things. Jacob's household had collected foreign gods. While in Shechem, remember they, his sons murdered all the men in Shechem and they took all the women, children, and all their stuff. So, they have blood on their hands. They need to be cleansed. They have foreign gods in their possession. They need to be repented of. There's also the foreign god in their possession that belonged to Jacob's wife, remember? That she stole from her, fa from her father Laban and, and Haran. That needs to be repented of. They had defiled themselves in the murder and plundering of Shechem. They had also um, taken foreign gods. They need to repent of all of that. They are also told to take off their earrings and give them to Jacob. And, and then they're buried, all, everything's buried under the tree at Shechem. 
Now, we don't entirely know why they gave them their earrings. It, this, I, here's what I know is not the application of this. Women, throw all your earrings in the offering, and we'll bury them outside by a tree somewhere. That's not the application here. Why are they giving up their earrings? We don't entirely know, but here's my guess. Um, in Israel, when they were at the mountain, they gathered their earrings of gold, if you remember, and they cast them into a fire and made a golden calf. Genesis 32 and verse 2. And I think what's happening is this is a picture of the people forsaking all false worship and idolatry. If we give away our gold earrings and we throw them out, then we can't fashion a false god out of them. They're changing their garments. They're forsaking all false worship and idolatry. They're changing their garments. They're participating in outward rites of cleansing, all which point to the need for inward cleansing. The outward rites are never su sufficient. They're never the point. They're always pointing to a greater spiritual reality. When a man was cleansed or baptized in Leviticus, it was pointing to his need for his heart to be cleansed. Not his flesh, in that strict sense. The male member is circumcised, and when it is, it circumcises a kind of cleansing, pointing to the need for the heart to be cleansed. So they were supposed to circumcise their hearts. Their hearts were supposed to be washed clean. Sacraments are visible words. They point you to your need for invisible grace. When we baptize someone, whether it's a professing believer or their child, we're not saying that this water cleanses them. We're not saying that. We're saying that this, is a, this sign is declaring their need for and God's provision of the cleansing of their hearts through faith in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Friends, external forms in worship are not meaningless. They're commanded. Baptism points to the cleansing of the heart, union with Christ, that God is your God and you're his people, etc. But baptism is not thereby meaningless because the spiritual reality is what matters. God commanded that external form. The Lord's Supper is not actually, you guys know this, when you eat it, you're not actually chewing on Christ's flesh in the sense that that is like it's transubstantiated into his body and his blood in that sense. You know, you're not doing that. Yet, um, this is a spiritual feeding on the body and blood of Christ. Yet, it's not thereby made unimportant. They're not commanded, external forms are not commanded as ends in themselves. They're commanded as visible pictures of what should be happening in our hearts. Of what God is doing by grace. Let me give an example. We're not commanded to wear our Sunday best anywhere in the Bible. You guys know that phrase? I'm dating myself again. You know, you're wearing your Sunday best. Right? We're not commanded anywhere in the Bible to wear our Sunday best. And wearing our Sunday best can be a mere form of religious formalism, can't it? Absolutely. But many people did that. And many people still, or maybe many is too strong. Some people still do that as a way of externally reminding themselves of the importance of the Lord's Day and the distinctness of corporate worship. They go through those motions as a way of reminding themselves of important spiritual realities. 
And that's a good practice when it's done for that reason. So um, Steve Lawson, who preaches in lots of places, says that when he was growing up as a child, every Saturday, his dad would get out his finest clothes and take, Steve said, we would go into the, to my bedroom and dad would lay out my finest clothes and have everything prepared and he would tell me, tomorrow's the Lord's day, we're going to worship the Lord, so we want to be ready to come before the Lord. And he said, it, it, it wasn't that the clothing changed his heart, it was that his dad with that external form kept teaching him a lesson again and again and again, which is tomorrow's the most important day of our week because we come to worship the Lord. When external forms are given for that reason and practiced for that reason, they're very good. When they're practiced for the purpose of mere religious formalism, they're wicked. That's why God commands particular external rites. They're for our benefit. We can only approach God if we're consecrated, if we're a holy people. Look with me at Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Keep your hand in Genesis 35, but look over at Psalm 24. I didn't tell you we were going to go there in advance, sorry, um, but it's, it's almost dead in the middle of your Bible, a little bit closer to Genesis, but I, I say that, I always forget that people have study Bibles with loads of notes, and depending on how they balance those, it might not be quite in the middle, but somewhere near there. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. Now listen to how David will sing in the first six verses. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. See, we all belong to God. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now listen, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? In other words, ascend the mountain, go to where God dwells. Enter the tabernacle or temple. Who shall go there and who shall stand in his holy place where God is? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Is that you? Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Only the man who's holy. Only the man who's holy. And so Jacob is calling his people to repentance. We see that in their external rites. But it's only the man whose heart is clean who can come into the Lord's presence. The problem is our hearts aren't clean. They're defiled by sin. So we need someone who's not us, a man, not me. You understand that? To save us and cleanse us. We need someone to enter God's holy presence to cleanse us so that we might follow him in. So listen to Hebrews 9. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. For Christ has entered. He's going to enter the Holy of Holies. Listen. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. See, your temple or your tabernacle are just copies of the true holy of holies in heaven. That's not where he entered. He didn't enter your tabernacle or temple. He went into the true holy of holies where God dwells in heaven. He went into, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Now listen to this language. Into the presence of God on our behalf. 
Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. In other words, they had to keep offering sacrifices because it couldn't atone. For then he'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and he entered into heaven into the presence of God on our behalf. And we're saved by him, cleansed by him, sanctified or consecrated by him, so we get to enter into God's presence as well. And as those who belong to Christ, who are justified, cleansed, washed, sanctified, you saw that in 1 Corinthians, as Jason read from that passage, able to approach the Lord in worship, we're still called to be sanctified as we come to worship. We're to come to the worship of God through the external means that God has given and God has commanded. And we're to come to worship the worship of God in faith with hearts full of assurance, with an internal frame of heart, if you will. All of our acts in worship, all the rites that we participate in, are visible external acts, aren't they? Commanded by God, at least they're supposed to be. But they're to be married to internal realities in the heart. Why do we read the law and then corporately confess our sins and our faith in the gospel? Confess your sins to one another. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if anyone confesses his sin. Why do we pronounce the gospel word of forgiveness of sins? See, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. That's the announcement of Christ's work, not a forgiveness we effect. We do these things because God commands it. And God commands it precisely because we need these external rites of remembrance to continue in the faith. Uh, Let's compare it just for a minute to being a a good citizen in your country. If you're going to be a good citizen of America, you need particular rites that you participate in, external acts, so that you learn. You pledge allegiance to the flag. You sing the national anthem. You're told the history of the nation over and over again. It's good and it's bad. You're trained in what we believe. It's held up. You sing patriotic songs. Right? These are the things you do if you're going to be a good citizen, aren't they? Unfortunately, we've completely abandoned most of that in our society. And then we wonder why we're turning on ourselves. Well, friends, in the church... This is the same kind of external set of rites or acts. You do the things God has commanded so that you become a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They bring you along. These external acts are acts of remembrance to continue in the faith. Why do we baptize and take the Lord's Supper? Because God commands it so that we might continue in the faith. Why do we pray for God's spirit to bless the reading of the word or to set apart the elements of the Lord's Supper? or to ask God to answer the needs of the congregation, or to set apart officers in, the ordination, in ordination, because God commands it, and we need it to grow in the faith. Why do we say some of the same things over and over and over again, the same reason you would do the flag salute every day? So you're reminded again and again. The same reason when I was a kid we, 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 we sang the preamble, Schoolhouse Rock. You guys know that, right? 
You, know, you remember Schoolhouse Rock. If you, if you don't, I'm sorry. I'm dating myself once again. But we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. You guys know, I remember in eighth grade as I was taking my constitution exam, I could hear everybody in class going, hmm, 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 writing out the preamble. We memorize that stuff because we want to be good citizens of our country. Well, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're given these rights to help us be good citizens. Not because the rights themselves cause your heart to love the Lord, but because the rights remind you of the truths that you hold together so that you grow in love for the Lord. Why do we sit under the reading and preaching of the word? Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Why do we give tithes and offerings of money or offer our voice, voices in song congregationally, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, take an offering on the first day of the week? Why do we hear the benediction at the end of the service? Why do we not run out the doors, but we stick around until the benediction? Because God gets the last word. Christ says, before you leave, I want to bless you. And that matters. Look, I could go on about all this, but all these external rites, these elements are to be tied to the internal consecration of your heart. If the Lord does not have your heart, then your offerings and sacrifices and songs and prayers are useless. God hates them, in fact. Now, Christ has given us these external elements of worship as a means by whereby he grows us in grace. But if your heart does not belong to him, then these are merely external religious rites for you. They were never intended to be that way. That's why God can say again and again in the prophets, I hate your sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifices and offerings that God commanded them to participate in. Why did he hate them? He didn't hate them because he was against religion. He hated them because he was against heartless religion. He was against external acts by men who were not changed internally. Saints, I want to encourage you to come to worship with your hearts prepared to hear the Lord and to praise his name. I mean, how often do we sit at lunch, instead of criticizing the worship service or evaluating it, how much do we sit at lunch evaluating our own worship? I don't buy our own worship. I don't mean what these folks up here are doing. I mean what was happening in our hearts during the worship service. Man, I was too self-focused this morning. I didn't really listen well. I was kind of checked out. I kept looking at my phone. I kept thinking about my work week. You know what, I didn't sleep very well last night or enough so that I'm better prepared to come to worship, so I kept nodding off. I need to come earlier so I can pray and prepare my own heart for worship. I should probably prep the day before so I'm not stressed out the morning of trying to get all my clothes and everything else together and yelling at my wife on the way to church. Probably not good for my worship or my kids or whatever. I should set apart the whole day for him and bookend it with morning and evening worship precisely because my heart so quickly, so quickly drifts to the cares and anxieties of the present world. Throughout the scripture, they worship morning and evening to set apart a whole day for worship. We do this so our hearts and minds are anchored in Christ in heaven and not relentlessly caught up with the demands of our earthly week. How often do we approach Lord's Day thinking my own life is so filled with inconsistency and sin that I'm not sufficiently prepared in my heart for worship, so I need to more regularly repent and seek God's forgiveness? I'm so focused on the world out there that I deal with six days per week 
that I have allowed those six days to own this day, this day set apart as holy for the Lord for worship. That the other six days are crowding my thoughts all this day and my energies. Friends, the, the Lord's day set apart as a foretaste of heaven. And when you give it up to continue to participate in its earthly things, don't be surprised when you're overrun with anxiety because you're never taking time to cast your gaze on Christ in heaven where he is. You're constantly caught up with the drive of the earthly week. And that leads to our final heading, confidence in worship. We're going to come back to much of this language next week. But confidence in worship. Why is Jacob confident in approaching the house of God? I mean, who can dwell on God's holy hill? Jacob is by no means a man without sin. You guys understand that. Jacob is a mess. So how is he able to confidently approach the Lord in worship? Well, what does Jacob know? Look at Genesis 35.3. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God. Now notice, notice why his, where his confidence comes from. To the altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with, with me wherever I have gone. See, his confidence is the Lord's with me, the Lord hears me. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that are around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. He knew his name is changed to Israel, which means God fights for, for you, and he sees God fighting for him and protecting him in a world of opposition. That undergirds his confidence, or God's promises to him have been confirmed. Look at verse, um, really, 9 and following. And God appeared to Jacob, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. We're going to come back to this next week. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a congregation or company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give this land to your offspring after you. In other words, these are all the same promises he made in Genesis 28. And now Jacob's seeing them all confirmed. And that's his confidence to approach God in worship. But we see Jacob's confidence in worship in one more particular act. Look at verse 13. We'll see his confidence and in the kind of consecration of himself. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The pouring out of a drink offering, if you don't know this, is, is a part of the rite of ascension in Leviticus. So there are various rites. One of them is the rite of ascension, the going up to heaven in Leviticus. Paul, for example, will say that my life has been poured out as a drink offering, both in Philippians 2, 17 and 2 Timothy 4, Verse 6, I believe. My life is poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Remember, it's better to depart and be with the Lord than to remain here with you. Philippians 1. So here's what he's saying. Jacob is symbolically pouring himself out to death. That's what a drink offering was. I'm pouring myself out to death so that I might ascend to the Lord's presence. 
He's symbolically pouring himself out to death, trusting he will ascend into God's holy presence through faith in the Lord's covenant promises. Promises ultimately fulfilled in Christ. How do we know that? I've been poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. This is all Levitical language telling us that the man who knows the Lord says, my life is given over him to death, all of me. I trust him with it because I trust he's going to bring me all the way home. And this leads me to a question. What does confident worship for the new covenant Christian look like? Turn to Hebrews 10. We'll wrap up in Hebrews here. Hebrews 10. First, I'm just going to give you three brief applications. Christian worship is confident in Christ's, sorry, in Christ's priestly work of cleansing us of sin. Christian worship, new covenant worship, is confident in Christ's priestly work of cleansing us from sin. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The curtain speaking of that curtain that kept us from the Holy of Holies where God dwells. Since that's the case, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, the one who came and made the offering for us, who was the go-between between us and God, since we have him, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You guys seeing the language? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See we have a great high priest who's cleansed us from all our sins by his blood. We have a great high priest who's given us a good conscience. We have a great high priest who is faithful. And it is because of him and his work that we can draw near to God with confidence and worship. What happens the first time Moses comes into the presence of God at the burning bush? God says to him, first words Moses hears when he comes to the burning bush, do not come near. Do not come near. For the place you're standing is holy ground. So you can't come into the holy presence of God. And now you're told, let us draw near. Hear the change? We're told to draw near. Saints, this is the glorious good news of the new covenant in Christ. He has atoned for our sin once and for all with his blood. He has resurrected from the dead, freeing us from lifelong slavery to fear of death. He has ascended to heaven, to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, to Mount Zion, and presented the offering of his blood. He is our forerunner behind the curtain, and now in Christ we can draw near to God and worship. So we are confident because of our priest who's atoned for our sins. Second, Christian worship is confident in Christ's gracious presence. Confident in Christ's gracious presence. So look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 and we'll look at verse 22. He's just talked about how Israel couldn't come near to Mount Sinai. They couldn't, go, they couldn't ascend Mount Sinai because of God's holy 
presence there. And now he's going to make a contrast between Israel at Mount Sinai and us. Verse 22, but you have come, not you will someday come. You have come to Mount Zion. That's the place where God dwells. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven is the elect, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those are the people who've died in Christ, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a stunning passage about worship. He's saying when you worship, when we worship, we ascend into heaven. It doesn't feel like that. I feel like I'm in an auditorium at Frontier in Bakersfield, which Bakersfield seems nowhere near to heaven. But when we come together and worship by, by the Spirit, through faith, we ascend to heaven. And Christ is present with us. We've come to Jesus. And note what Christ is speaking in worship. His blood and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did Abel's blood, Abel was murdered by Cain, what did Abel's blood cry out for? Vengeance. What does Christ's blood cry out for? Mercy. It is not merely that Christ is present with us right now, but it is that he is present in grace to us. That's why the minister announces, why Paul's always saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is present in his church to bless them with mercy and grace. Christ is the grace of God to us. And when we worship, we ascend to his presence and we hear his word of grace to us. Finally, Christian worship is confident in Christ's kingly rule. Look down at verse 25 of Hebrews 12. Verse 25. Confident in Christ's kingly rule. So not just his priestly work or his presence in grace or his gracious presence, but his kingly rule. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Here comes the warning. Look, when you come to corporate worship, do not refuse him who's speaking. Him who is speaking is not talking about me. It's talking about Christ speaking through his word by the Spirit. Yes, he's using the minister. But he's the one speaking. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Moses. If they did not excuse, escape when they refused him, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That's Jesus. See, Moses warned them from earth on Mount Sinai. Jesus warns them from heaven in Mount Zion. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God, our God, is a consuming fire. See, Christians are careful to listen to his voice in worship. We're actually figuring out how to prepare ourselves so that when we come here, we want to hear from him. We want to hear from him. Christians are grateful for the unshakable kingdom we've received. 
And we heed the warning about being those who are merely committed to external acts and empty professions of faith. We don't want to be them. We want to be the people whose hearts have changed. We don't want to be the people whose lives are not subdued by the king. We want to be the people who say, ah, I want to, I want to hear from my Savior. I want to do whatever my Lord says. Christians are keenly aware of the holiness of God and the seriousness, seriousness with which we enter his presence. Listen, that's why you don't need some minister to come up here and act like a clown, try to entertain you and be funny. You wonder, if we ascended to heaven, would you act that way, minister? Is that how you would lead people's, Christ's people in worship before the holy God? Of course, we know the answer to that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. And Christians... If you ascended to heaven right now in God's presence, I mean body and soul, not just spirit by the spirit, and you were there, would you be looking at your iPhone, wondering about your coffee, worrying about what's coming up for lunch, thinking about why the sermon's going a little long? Would any of that be crossing your mind as Christ speaks to you in heaven? So what's going on in our hearts that that stuff consumes us on the day the Lord is set apart so we can dwell with him as a foretaste of our eternity. Saints, I encourage you to draw near to Christ in corporate worship every Sunday morning and evening. If you don't know Christ, if you're merely here because it's the thing that you do, not because Christ has your heart, but because you're religious in the bad sense of the word, then please, I encourage you to turn to him in faith. Repent of your sins. Trust him for forgiveness. This day is a foretaste of eternity with Christ and your joyful, eternal rest in him. It's not to be littered with our secular concerns. And as we set the day apart, we set our own hearts apart for corporate worship. As we do that, I encourage you, come here with keen ears ready to listen, with grateful hearts rejoicing in grace, with reverence and awe, knowing our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your kind help and assistance by your spirit to set apart our hearts for worship. We want to do what you've commanded in your word. We want to do it with hearts that belong to you. We know, Father, that we cannot make our hearts love you, that it is only as our Savior comes to us clothed with grace and mercy, as his blood speaks a better word, that we are saved and transformed and renewed in his image. We pray that you would do that work, that we would look to Christ, that we would see him as he is and have great joy in him, that we would know him as our Savior, that our hearts would be set apart for his worship, that we would long for heaven and to be in his presence forever. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.